Hello, and welcome to Shaping the Future, a show dedicated to explaining both Canada's political systems and the political news in a simplified way, in hopes of getting more young people involved. I'm your host, Hayden Fougier. On the pod today, a universal basic income is becoming more likely in Canada. We have a blue New Deal. Doug Ford lashes out at some young people and backstabbing in politics. Who would have thought? And in the classroom, I sit down with Sean Frazier, Member of Parliament for Central Nova and Parliamentary Secretary for the Deputy Prime Minister, the Minister and Associate Ministers of Finance, and the Minister for the Middle Class Prosperity, as he helps explain what a Parliamentary Secretary is and what his duties are in the run of a day. So universal basic income is becoming more likely here in Canada, as delegates of the Liberal Convention vote to establish one. With 8.7% of Canadians living below the poverty line and thousands more struggling to make ends meet, backers of this policy say universal basic income would ensure that communities at risk are able to feel financially secure. Now, while the resolution didn't say how much implementing a universal basic income would cost, we do have some idea. The parliamentary budget officer has said the program could cut Canada's poverty rate by almost half in the first year of the program, but it would cost about $85 billion, rising to $95 billion by 2025. Now, before all you folks who are concerned about Canada's deficit get all hot and bothered, these resolutions are non-binding. That means the federal liberals don't actually have to listen to them. Even though they don't need to listen to them, that doesn't mean there's not a growing demand for something of that nature in this country. A few weeks ago, I got the chance to speak to Senator Kim Pate for last week's episode of Shaping the Future. Senator Pate is all for what they call a universal livable income. It's a little different to a universal basic income, but I'll let the senator explain the difference. So first of all, um, the language is important because universal basic income means basically a demigrant. And it's a, it's a more conservative approach, which says the same amount of money goes to everybody. I'm not proposing that. And in fact, most credible folks who are recommending um, a guaranteed livable income or a basic income are not recommending a demigrant, a, a check that goes to every single person in the country, but instead an income tested. So like CERB, um, like CERB in principle and like the child benefit, we already have a guaranteed livable income in the form of a child benefit and the guaranteed income supplement for seniors. And those were put in place because there was an effort to try and bring kids and seniors out of poverty. And so like that, it would be uh, something tied to a commitment the government has made, which is to have automatic filing systems within the next number of years through the the, uh, Revenue Canada. And the importance of that we saw during this pandemic because EI could not respond to the need. So for those who had had lost their work because of the uh, pandemic, EI could not respond fast enough. So they did it through the tax rolls. But what they didn't do was take care of the one in seven or one in 10, depending on which poverty measures you use. But basically at least 10% or three and a half million Canadians who weren't supported. And so what we're talking about is something that would create a floor that nobody could fall below to try and assist people to get out of poverty. And, and so, you know, that's what we're talking about. And so the cost of that is much lower. It's, it's about 44 billion and the parliamentary budget officer, the, um, the bank of Canada have all indicated that had we had that kind of measure in place before the pandemic, we would have saved an awful lot of money during this time. And how do you pay for it? Well, some of it would require some reallocation of taxes during the same time that three and a half million Canadians have not been supported. 20 of the richest people in this country, billionaires, have made 
I think it's now 53 or $57 billion. Like clearly we need some tax reforms as well in this country. And so um, people like much smarter than me on these issues, like Dr. Evelyn Forget, who's an economist who worked on the income, you know, analyzing the income project, which was the first basic income um, pilot in this country have said, uh, you have, you know, costed out how we could do this. This is an example though, of where the cost the, the cost outlay initially, you wouldn't see the benefit probably until one or two election cycles down the road. And so that I think is one of the stumbling blocks is, you know, if, if this government implements it, it may be a government, you know, the next session or the session after that, that sees the benefit in terms of lower costs of healthcare, lower costs of crime in, in um, and the criminal legal system and all of the ways that we see um, investing. The other thing is, if we give money in that way, instead of through the social assistance scheme, then people actually have an opportunity to rebound out of poverty. And every, every dollar that is provided in that way, much like the child benefit, every dollar that is given out through the child benefit is actually generates $2 within the economy, because people spend that money in the economy. And, and unlike really wealthy folks who may be storing their money offshore or in you know developing other kinds of ways of tax havens or you know ways to hide their money this money is all going back into the community and so it benefits us all ultimately and we know that countries that have gone in this sort of direction um, two things have happened one they see a higher standard of living for everybody a more equal society they see lower costs of health care lower costs of the criminal legal system and, you know, a better, the human development index is higher. And that means, you know, some places like Iceland call it their happiness index. Well, who wouldn't vote for something like that in terms of wanting to see that down the road? And right now, PEI, um, Nova Scotia has indicated, Newfoundland and Labrador have indicated, uh, BC was interested, Yukon is interested, but PEI is ready to go. They've said, you know, if, if you partner with us right now, you know, Canada, we're ready to go. And I think we should be um, piloting the implementation of this in PEI. So, so I think, uh, you know, the, the costs, is there for sure there's an initial outlay of costs, um, but the cost savings, um, all, you know, all projections are that it would actually save us more in the long term and create a, a much more uh, equitable society overall. I also raised the issue of some sort of basic income with Member of Parliament Sean Fraser during our conversation. Here's what he had to say. You mentioned that you sat down with everybody, uh, including anti-poverty uh, advocates. Last week, I had the chance to sit down and speak to Senator Kim Pate. Uh, we had the chance to discuss guaranteed livable income. Um, she supports the idea, as does the federal NDP and a member of your own party. Uh, recently pitched uh, Bill C-273, which is an act to establish guaranteed basic income. Now, well, well base, guaranteed basic income and guaranteed livable income are two separate things. I kind of want to get your opinion on, on a guaranteed livable income and, and what you think of, of that and if it has any place in, in your government's plan to recover from this pandemic. Um, so the, um, the, it, it depends entirely on the very specific details of how the policy is going to be implemented. Um, so poverty reduction has to be a top priority. I, the idea that you can be um, trying to advance social and economic policy without realizing the a, a the injustice of seeing your neighbors live in poverty when you've got billionaires down the street is is crazy to me. Um, the flip side of that equation, similar to the um, 
conversation we just had about education policy, the, the cost of poverty to society is unimaginably large. When people live in poverty, they more often um, have uh, poor mental health outcomes. They have poor uh, education outcomes by comparison. They're, uh, they run into trouble with the law more often. They develop addictions more often. Um, child and family services are more often engaged. They have lower, public, the lower health outcomes that increase the cost of the public health care system. The decision not to eradicate poverty is a very expensive one, and people treat it like it's not a decision. People treat it like, well, that's just a factor of life. It's not. You can make a decision to eradicate poverty. It takes a serious upfront investment. The question in my mind is, what is the most effective way to do that? Um, there was a really interesting report came out of British Columbia recently. The, um, at the time, the, the NDP Green Coalition government funded this report. And it essentially said, um, you should be looking at a basic income for certain groups of people who through circumstances outside of their own control are not able um, to work and earn a living. Uh, those groups included um, uh, Canadians that are living with disabilities. They included uh, women who are fleeing violence, youth aging out of care, um, a number of other groups um, that, that sort of uh, through no, circum uh, no fault of their own are living in circumstances that prevent them from uh, finding work. Um, they said next, uh, what you should be doing is making investments that will disproportionately help low-income people, investing in things like affordable housing, investing in things like transit, investing in things like skills training and development. I think we should be doing all of those things, but we also need to be looking at the social safety net. And this is sort of taking it all back to your original question. Uh, does a guaranteed um, a livable income have a place? Uh, I think it does, but I think you've got to be very careful uh, not to conflate that idea with a universal basic income, for example, which would send um, a, a check of a few thousand dollars a month to uh, a member of parliament or a doctor or a lawyer in your community, people who don't need it. That is bad policy. That, that is not targeted. And if you actually did at the same value of CERB, uh, universal basic income, you'd be looking at tripling the total spending of the government of Canada, and you would very quickly realize it's not sustainable and, and our, our system would fall apart. Uh, so the details would remain, even if you can notionally get behind a guaranteed livable income, on how do you actually execute on that? Um, could you do it through uh, topping up the Canada Workers Benefit Program to ensure that everyone who's willing to work full time will have access to a, uh, a minimum amount of um, uh, income to ensure they don't live in poverty? Do you just send checks to people below a certain income threshold? And then you have to start asking yourself, what impact is that going to have on the cost of milk and bread? Uh, because it does very little good if you top up everyone's income, but then inflation sucks the value of that wage increase away. Uh, so to me, um, if the interest is eradicating poverty, that's the important starting point. And, and the answer has to be that your goal should be zero poverty in your community. Your goal should be zero homelessness in your community. How you get there uh, by a combined investment in um, uh, social infrastructure like housing and transit uh, and, and add that to a mix of personal income support for people who need it and a reform of the social safety net um, through uh, the EI system or provincial social assistance programs is really important. And maybe I'll conclude on this point. Uh, a basic income is not foreign to Canada. The Canada child benefit is a basic income for people who have kids of a certain age from certain income backgrounds. 
uh, old age security and the guaranteed income supplement uh, are basic incomes for people who meet certain criteria, uh, uh, including uh, certain age criteria. Social assistance in the provinces is a, uh, a guaranteed minimum income. Now, a lot of these uh, programs uh, might be a basic income, but they're not enough to allow you to escape poverty. They're, they help. Uh, but we should get past the idea that direct income support is foreign and uh, that we can't do it. Uh, we can. We just have to be very, very smart in how we deploy the policy to ensure that it's well targeted and that we don't end up accidentally creating inflation for low income people and that we don't accidentally end up cutting checks for people who don't need it. Now, while I agree with people who are saying the price tag is too high for universal basic income, I think a universal livable income is a much easier thing for the Trudeau liberals to pitch to the Canadian people and something I think the even the people opposed to universal basic income could get on board with. If the federal liberals decide to unveil something like this in the upcoming budget, I think you can expect to hear messaging about how the program will help lift the most down and out Canadians out of poverty while avoiding giving to the richest 1%. The Conservatives have finally launched a climate plan, and there's some interesting things in it, so I figured we'd break it down. The Conservative climate plan includes a carbon tax, which is a rather dramatic shift in the party after constantly yelling about how much they hate a carbon tax. The Conservative carbon tax would propose a $20 per ton price on carbon and would not exceed $50 per ton, which is far, far lower than the Liberals' plan, which starts at $40 per ton of carbon emissions and is set to increase to $50 by next year and going to increase by $15 annually until it hits $170 by 2030. Now, as I explained in the last episode of Shaping the Future, the Liberal system only applies to the provinces that don't have their own system set up yet. Currently, those are Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, Ontario, Manitoba, and two, I will admit, I forgot, uh, Nunavut and the Yukon. Under the Liberal policy, 90% of all the extra cash that is brought in through this program is returned to Canadians through a tax credit. The other 10% goes to a small and medium-sized businesses, schools, hospitals, the type of establishments that can't pass the cost of their emissions onto the consumers who would then get them back. Under the Conservative program, the money you pay in extra carbon tax wouldn't be given back to you in some sort of tax credit. Instead, you would get a low-carbon personal savings account, which you could use to buy things to help you live what the Conservatives are calling a greener lifestyle. So you could buy things like a bike or a bus pass, or even if you save up for long enough, an electric car. The Conservatives say they also want to add a zero-emissions mandate where 30% of all vehicles sold by 2030 have to be electric, and introduce lower North America-wide industrial emission standards by pitching them to the Biden administration. Now, while I'm certainly excited to see that the Conservative Party is pushing forward a climate plan, I'm skeptical about the green bank account. I personally don't like the idea of the government telling Canadians how to spend the money that they took from them, but I'm hopeful the party is taking a step in this direction. Now, speaking of Conservatives, the Premier of Ontario, where COVID cases have been on a steady increase for a while, said in a press conference, don't blow this for us, referring to, of course, young people who have been in increasing percentage of the active cases of COVID in the province. Now, many people, including myself, feel as though this is the exact opposite of the response we require from elected officials to get us through this health crisis. Some say that one of the reasons that young people are spiking in the COVID cases lately is because of their outworking the frontline jobs that Doug Ford's government has failed to shut down. Things like patios, rest, serving in restaurants, coffee shops, things like that. Now, one of the main reasons that we here in Nova Scotia have been able to have such a low case number, I think, anyways, is due to the exceptional leadership from our elected officials. That type of leadership trickles down through the citizens, and that meant when the government instituted a mask mandate, 
the amount of compliance we had was fantastic. I think that politically, Doug Ford missed an opportunity as well. His polling numbers have taken a massive hit since the second wave of COVID. They plummeted to only 39% of people from Ontario approving of his handling of the pandemic. During the same time frame, Nova Scotia's then Premier Steve McNeil's polling numbers were up a staggering 29%. Prior to the pandemic, Steve McNeil was polling at roughly 48%. Once the pandemic hit, his polling numbers skyrocketed up to 77% of Nova Scotians feeling satisfied with how he handled the pandemic. I think that if the Ontario government has shut down as hard and as fast as the Maritimes did, I think we could have seen a bump in the polls. And frankly, I think he could have ridden it to another electoral win. Now, before we head into the classroom, I think it's time for some political gossip. Now, according to multiple sources within the Conservative Party, Aaron O'Toole banned Peter McKay from running in the next election, even though he wanted to. Peter McKay was, of course, the man who placed second to Aaron O'Toole in the Conservative leadership race. Apparently, Peter McKay was in talks with the head of the Riding Association, who was all set for him to run. But I guess when he told the higher-ups in the party, he didn't get a warm reception. The president of the Riding Association even said that he got the feeling that the higher-ups in the party didn't want it to happen. I think that Aaron O'Toole recognized that if Peter McKay ran, and most likely won, his riding, he would have a party divided. During the leadership race, Peter McKay had a strong support in the Maritimes, and even stronger support among the more center-leaning conservatives. However, Aaron O'Toole won over the more far-right conservatives during his leadership bid, and that's what inevitably put him over the top. Now, there's some evidence to show this. Of the 24 members of Parliament who supported Peter McKay and had shadow cabinet positions under the previous leader of the party, Andrew Scheer, they all found themselves booted out of their positions. And it goes further than just the leadership race. Former conservative finance critic Pierre Polyev, who had been sucking up a lot of the spotlight, found himself moved to a different position as Minister of Jobs. I think that Aaron O'Toole is trying his best just to clear the stage in front of him so he can go out and introduce himself to Canadians who, so far, don't seem to know who he is or, frankly, don't care. Normally, after a convention, the party with a newly named leader receives some kind of bump in the polls. Even an artificial one that comes back to earth after a few weeks. Not Aaron O'Toole. Since the day he got elected, he's been languishing behind the Conservatives. And he's made a critical political mistake, and that's letting your opponents tell people who you are before you've had the chance to tell people who you are. Justin Trudeau and his Liberals have painted Aaron O'Toole as a man who isn't true to his word and will tell you anything you want to hear just to get ahead. They're using the example that Aaron O'Toole has said that he firmly supports the woman's right to choose, but turned around to the far-right anti-abortion groups within his party and told them he wouldn't stop members from introducing anti-abortion legislation. If I was Peter McKay or Pierre Polyev, and this next federal election resulted in a liberal majority government, which, judging by the polls, is looking more and more likely, I wouldn't wait to start poking around and talking about a new leader. When we come back... I sit down with Sean Frazier, Member of Parliament for Central Nova and Parliamentary Secretary for the Deputy Prime Minister, the Minister and Associate Ministers of Finance, and the Minister for the Middle Class Prosperity, as he helps explain what a Parliamentary Secretary is and what his duties are in the run of a day. Welcome to the classroom. Today we're talking about Parliamentary Secretaries. They're the folks you don't often hear a lot about, but they serve a pretty important role. Their main job is to help the minister with things like getting legislation passed or sitting in for them in the House of Commons when they can't be there to answer questions. Now, I'm going to keep this explanation short and sweet today because my guests can explain a little bit better than I am. 
Prior to running for office, Sean Frazier had a successful legal career with one of Canada's top-ranked law firms. He served as the vice president of a local branch of the United Nations Association of Canada and acted as a research fellow with the Center for International Sustainable Development Law and provided pro bono legal services to the Boys and Girls Club and underprivileged community members. Here now, to help answer things a little bit better than I can, is Sean Frazier, Member of Parliament for Central Nova and Parliamentary Secretary for the Minister and Associate Ministers of Finance, the Deputy Prime Minister, and the Minister for Middle Class Prosperity. Thank you very much for your time today, Mr. Frazier. It's great to, great to have the chance to talk to you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for host, hosting me. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so you recently got named Parliamentary Secretary to the Deputy Prime Minister. You're also Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister and Associate Ministers of Finance and the Minister of Middle Class Prosperity. Uh, can you go through what like a typical day looks like as a Parliamentary Secretary? Um, yeah, so maybe before I tell you what a typical day looks like, I'll tell you and uh, give you the Coles Notes version of what uh, what a parliamentary secretary is. Um, so every cabinet minister has a parliamentary secretary who's assigned to help them in the discharge of their parliamentary responsibilities. Uh, the kinds of things uh, that it could entail uh, would be taking questions in question period when the minister's not available, uh, doing a, a, a tour to discuss uh, issues of importance on, uh, to a given portfolio around a particular region of Canada, um, taking care of some of the um, uh, reporting requirements in Parliament and, and meeting with stakeholders from, um, uh, that may have uh, be, be impacted by decisions that a given minister takes. So what that looks like in the run of a day uh, is to, you, you've got to remember that in addition to being a parliamentary secretary, uh, your first job remains being a member of parliament. Uh, so you're trying to um, uh, fight with yourself uh, to figure out where you should be spending your time in some ways. Uh, so when you're not working on the constituency side of things, um, it, there's a big divide between when you're in Ottawa and when you're in your constituency. So when you're in Ottawa, uh, you will be attending the committee meeting. So I'm a member of the uh, Standing Committee on Finance, and I spend uh, quite a few hours every week um, in those meetings. Uh, when question period is taking place and the minister can't be there, any questions to do with Canada's finances, the state of the economy, or uh, the number of jobs in, in Canada at any given point in time, uh, it's my job to take those questions. And I spend an awful lot of time uh, in Zoom meetings, or if it were not for the pandemic, uh, sitting across the table from stakeholders in the financial sector or in advance of a budget, uh, because I'm on the finance portfolio, a meeting with every national association you could imagine, hearing from them so I can report to the minister on what the budget priorities are for Canadians. So it's quite a wide range of things that you get involved with. Uh, but I've now had the opportunity to work on a few different portfolios and previously um, for the Minister of the Environment and Climate Change. Uh, but the, the general tasks are more or less as I've laid out. It's, but they, they all, at the end of the day, are to help facilitate the work of the minister in, uh, in Canada's parliament. So how, do, how does one go about becoming a parliamentary secretary? Like how, did, how did you first get tapped to, to become one? You know, it's kind of neat. The prime minister calls you. Uh, and, and asks you, uh, will you serve as parliamentary secretary to X? Um, the, um, the starting point, though, uh, is when, you, when you're first elected, you don't have any particular responsibility. Uh, the prime minister is responsible to appoint cabinet ministers and parliamentary secretaries. Uh, and the leadership of each party have some other appointments for committee chairs, um, uh, house leadership team, that, that sort of thing. Uh, but as a parliamentary secretary, the first thing that happens is first uh, cabinet is appointed. Uh, before the government is formed, uh, the prime minister has to appoint cabinet ministers 
and have the governor general more or less um, acknowledge that they have the ability to form government. Um, now, I've not been part of this next conversation before, but my understanding is that there's a, a really interesting conversation that takes place amongst cabinet ministers with the prime minister and uh, his senior staff in the room to try to figure out who amongst their caucus uh, should serve as parliamentary secretaries and within that group, who should be paired with which minister. Um, so uh, you may have different ministers who say, look, I, I think um, uh, Sean has really uh, uh, shown a propensity towards issues on my portfolio. I'd love to have him work with me. Another minister might say something similar. Somebody else might say, Sean's terrible. We don't want him on our team. Um, and then at the end of the day, the prime minister has the responsibility to, um, uh, to ask you to serve in a, in a particular portfolio. Um, the, uh, and the final say is, is the prime minister's. Uh, but uh, it's interesting because when you first start out, nobody knows uh, when you're first elected if you're very good at your job. Uh, so you come in as a backbencher and, uh, the, uh, and you can do a lot of good in the role as a backbench MP. Uh, but over the first couple of years where I was working on committee, you put your time in, you uh, try to show folks that you can do a good job, uh, not just so you can show them, but so you can actually advance the work of the government. And um, if, if people notice that you're performing well when you're taking part in a debate in the House, you're performing well at committee, uh, you seem to have a handle on the issues, uh, they may say, hey, this person could take uh, some additional responsibility on, uh, so we'll consider them for an appointment. And um, that's more or less how it goes. But then uh, it's, it's a random thing, you know, you get a, um, a message and they say, this is the Prime Minister's switchboard calling, would you hold for uh, Mr. Trudeau? He's like, of course, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a call I think a lot of people are quite happy to receive. Awesome. So uh, you mentioned earlier, like juggling the your duties as a parliamentary secretary versus your duties uh, to your constituents at home. Do you believe that being a parliamentary secretary kind of uh, helps the voices of your of your constituents at home? Uh, it can, uh, and it normally does. You do see on occasion, and this is not specific to any one of my colleagues, but over the course of um, being somebody who's watched politics. My, my whole life, um, you, you do see the odd time a person takes on additional responsibilities in Ottawa and it hinders their ability uh, by virtue of the pure time constraints to attend to um, those uh, community events the way they normally do or to call people back in a timely way in their own community. And uh, it's a real struggle that a lot of uh, first-time uh, cabinet ministers, first-time parliamentary secretaries have. Now, on the flip side of that, uh, in my particular capacity now as the parliamentary secretary for the Minister of Finance, I certainly have the opportunity to um, touch base with the Minister of Finance and the preparation of a budget uh, more frequently than other uh, caucus members may. Uh, so on the one hand, you, you're a little more pressed for time, but on the other, um, you do have an opportunity on the portfolio that you've been assigned to, to have a little more input on the policy formulation process. Uh, so the, it's a double-edged sword, uh, but certainly you, you can use it to the advantage of your community, uh, but really because you're able to inform the workings of the government as a whole. And if the government's working well as a whole, uh, in theory, that should serve your community well also. So, um, <coughs> excuse me, you just um, mentioned that, you know, if you take on more responsibility and all of those risks, you can't get to the, the events back home. Uh, how do you ensure that you can balance both of your responsibilities effectively? Um, well, you know, during a pandemic, it, in some ways, it's been um, the most challenging uh, professional year I, I expect I will ever have. And, and um, obviously, because of the very real uh, human suffering behind this pandemic. Um, but at the same time, um, 
juggling responsibilities has has been easier uh, because everything's been canceled at home. Uh, the community events you're used to going to are not happening uh, because everyone's respecting public health advice. Uh, I'm not traveling back and forth to Ottawa because uh, we, we've set up a virtual parliament and uh, I'm actually at home more. Uh, so between my family life, which is a, a top priority for me, uh, my Ottawa responsibilities, which I'm doing from my basement, and my constituency work, which I'm also doing from home, um, it's actually been easier in some ways during the pandemic uh, as compared to normal. But in a non-global uh, pandemic situation, um, it's a real challenge uh, because you are expected to be in Ottawa when the house is sitting. Um, you, uh, you're more often there until, um, like I, I usually, when the house is sitting, I get up at about 3.30 in the morning on Mondays to fly to Ottawa. And um, typically speaking, when you're a parliamentary secretary, you have to be there for the Friday sitting as well. So I usually don't get home until um, one in the morning on uh, Friday night. Um, so uh, trying to be attentive to things in your community and, and even getting up uh, Saturday morning after you've just gotten in at 1, 1 a.m. Uh, to drive two and a half hours to attend um, a seniors festival in, in Muscadabit Harbor is a challenge. Uh, but you have to decide, I, I'm going to be someone who makes it to those events or not. And uh, when you decide you're going to, it, it means it cuts into your personal time. Uh, and that, that is a real challenge, particularly as somebody with a young family trying to um, uh, juggle personal and professional responsibilities. Um, there, there's only so many hours in a day and you, you try really hard to get back to people. Um, one trend that I'm um, encouraged by is the public embrace of uh, virtual services. Uh, our constituency office sees far fewer people in person, but we're more productive in, in getting back to people because we're not spending 35 minutes at a time with a person who sort of popped into chat. Uh, with me personally, uh, those two and a half hour drives across the riding uh, are now done uh, much in the way that we're chatting right now. We're having a, a quick Zoom call, for example. Um, so you're, I, I do sense that um, the adoption of technology, not just by politicians, but the willingness to accept those technological developments amongst the general public has increased as a result of this pandemic. And, and hopefully, look, I'm an optimist. Uh, I, I hope that some of these solutions will remain, even when we have the ability to get back face to face, uh, the, the, the good developments could still prove to be good in a non-pandemic situation. Nice. And so you mentioned that uh, during question period, you're essentially the face of, of the minister uh, in the House of Commons. As such, uh, there have been a few clips of, of you facing off against conservative finance critic Pierre Polyev that have made the rounds on the internet. Um, what are some tips that you have for staying professional when dealing with someone who has conflicting opinions and, and is very clearly so passionate about them? Um, that's healthy. Um, you, you don't take any of this stuff personally. And, and, you know, it's a shame because every once in a while you do get um, uh, a member of the opposition who tries to make it a personal thing. And this is not a comment uh, uh, to my, my critic in particular. Uh, but you realize that um, your job in question period is to um, identify why the approach that your government has taken is, is the best approach. Um, if someone else is trying to demonstrate that they have a better approach, um, they're free to do so. Uh, and I, I don't mind spirited debate. I think it's great. I really enjoy uh, digging in uh, because when you do that in public, people get to see what the differences are. And uh, ne never take it personally, but never be personal is my, my best advice. Uh, and and you've got to know your stuff. Uh, it, it's a strange thing. Um, 
if I were to sit down with anyone over the course of an hour, uh, I'm pretty confident that I could make a good case that our government is, is uh, from an economic perspective, is, is on the right track, that the investments we made have been um, uh, more than justified and, in fact, have done an awful lot of good. Uh, the challenge is um, you have to explain that in 35-second clips. Otherwise, your microphone gets shut off. Uh, so you have to think about how you're going to present um, uh, billions of dollars worth of socio socioeconomic and policy, environmental policy, public health policy, and, and to communicate a salient point in 35 seconds, uh, which also responds to the question that you've been asked, can be a very challenging thing. Uh, so if you know your stuff uh, and you're not afraid to take on the fight when you think you're, um, you, you have an argument that's worth fighting for, um, then, uh, then I think you'll you'll be uh, you'll be just fine. Uh, but um, look, I know that if anybody takes a shot at me, uh, they're trying to appeal to their uh, their followers on on Facebook. Uh, they're they're not trying to hurt my feelings, and I, I I take no offense to any of that. Gotcha. So, in being a parliamentary secretary, how much direct involvement have you had in crafting a budget of twenty twenty one? Um, so the budget's still uh, in the works. Uh, my role in the development of that budget has been primarily to take feedback from stakeholders across Canada and from uh, members of parliament or senators uh, or, or other folks who, who may have an important point to communicate. So I've spent um, hundreds and hundreds of hours um, speaking with um, groups who are promoting everything from investments in the green economy to uh, cardiovascular health policy. Uh, to uh, conversations with uh, anti-poverty advocates, uh, to um, folks who are looking to create jobs in Atlanta, Canada. Um, if there is a, a perspective of a given industry, a group of people, uh, whether it's workers, businesses, nonprofit associations, um, you name it, I, I have met with a group representing their interests. Um, what my role has been is to make sure that the team in the finance minister's office is aware of these different perspectives and aware of what people are hoping to see in the budget. Um, now, you know, when you're crafting a budget that you're not going to have everything that everyone has asked for. Um, so I, I certainly share my, uh, my opinions um, as to what would make good sense to make for the kinds of investments we're looking at, rather than simply parroting uh, the, the sort of what I've heard approach. Uh, so I try my best to, um, to combine the, uh, I, I list everything that I've heard, uh, but I say, here's the kinds of things that I think could work. If you're looking at different options to reduce poverty, here are some of the advantages to this approach over that approach. Uh, and uh, I usually send um, the odd update to the team at finance and of course have the opportunity to have conversations uh, directly with the, the ministers I serve in the preparation of the budget as well. So if I can stick with the budget for a second, um... I'm just kind of curious what types of uh, what types of supports we could see for students in post-secondary. Um, your government has announced it'll fund 100% of student wages as part of the, the Canada Summer Jobs Program, but uh, some, including the federal NDP, uh, want to see more done. Uh, the NDP recently announced that they're going to push your government to to uh, forgive up to twenty thousand dollars in student loans. Uh, can we see? Can we expect to see any of this in the in the upcoming budget? 
Uh, I expect that you're going to have a focus on uh, young people, in particular, how the pandemic has impacted young people. Um, I'm not at, uh, at liberty to share specific um, policy decisions that will be announced in, in the budget. Uh, but this has been a, a focus for us for uh, a few years now. Um, by the way, my, uh, my start in politics um, uh, was, uh, well, I was going to say uh, in university, I was a student president at St. of X when I was um, a student there and have been uh, an advocate for, I, I, was, I used to be on the other side of the table meeting with members of parliament to advocate for these kinds of things um, when I was a, an undergrad student. Um, the kinds of things that we've done so far have been targeted to uh, essentially make education more affordable. Um, my, my starting point, rather than getting into the very specific investments, when I'm considering um, the outcome of a policy, I'm trying to figure out what, what, at what end am I trying to achieve by a very particular investment. Um, the thing that really concerns me is who's being excluded from access to an affordable education. Um, not just because it's unfair, because it's disproportionately um, uh, black, indigenous, uh, or, or other students from uh, a racial minority community who lack the means to uh, gain an education. Now, of course, some do from all backgrounds, but disproportionately, it's harder for folks from those different communities, uh, particularly if they're also from a low-income background. Um, I worry not only because of the social justice principle behind it, that we should have equal access to an education, but we are all losing out when some kids can't afford to go to school. Um, the next uh, great business solution or the cure for cancer may very well be trapped in the mind of uh, someone who can't afford an education. And if government policy excludes those people from formal education, um, it's society who loses out in addition to the individual. Um, so when I think about how you solve that problem, uh, while it might be popular to step out and say, look, everybody who has a student loan, we're going to wipe it away. Uh, and, and to be fair, that's not quite what the NDP are pitching, but just for the sake of, of the, the point. Um, you realize when you dig in um, that you might be helping some people who already have an education that were not excluded from access, who can actually afford to pay back their student loans. Um, if you're going to tackle the problem that way, you're probably better off to be uh, advancing uh, uh, programs like the Canada Student Grants Program to reduce the cost of education in the first place rather than forgiving uh, loans on the back end. Uh, you're probably better off to stop charging interest on student loans, which we announced not all that long ago. You're probably better off to say you don't have to repay your student loans until you're earning uh, enough of a salary where you can afford to do so. Um, that's, those are the kinds of policies that will actually change the mind of a person who's looking at the cost of an education as a barrier to them actually advancing their own career through education or skills development. Um, so I, I think there's um, th this is uh, an area that I've given a lot of thought to um, for the past um, 16, 17 years of my life. And it's something I want to make a difference on, not because uh, I think it's solely in the interest of students. That's part of it. Um, but it's also in the interest of my community. If the, the young people here can get an education that allows them to succeed and, and uh, potentially to choose to live locally, because they can create an opportunity for themselves to do so. I'm just going to switch gears real quick because I'm, I'm running out of time. I just want to get your thoughts on a few, uh, one more thing. So Aaron O'Toole has said uh, that his conservatives will have a national plan to fight uh, climate change, but members of his own party clearly think different uh, as they shot down a proposal to include the line, climate change is real and the conservative party is, is willing to act. Uh, what message do you think this sends uh, Canadians about the conservative stance on the issue? 
Look, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, I was on the environment portfolio before the last election and they said, we'll have a plan, we'll have a plan, we'll have a plan. It, it was almost a year, I believe, before they produced anything. And their plan was largely um, uh, subscribed to a uh, 1980s uh, neoliberal economic agenda uh, that tried to promote the development of, of uh, technologies that don't yet exist. Um, and um, frankly, um, wouldn't have achieved uh, anywhere near what we need to if we're going to avoid the worst consequences of climate change. Um, I saw the vote with a, the at the Conservative Policy Convention uh, showing 54% of people disagreed with the statement that uh, climate change is real and the Conservative Party, Party is willing to act. Um, one of the things that troubles me, and, and even Aaron O'Toole has um, done his best to sort of combat and say, look, that might be my membership's position, but I, I have a different view. And I think it's important that he said that. Uh, but the thing that really worries me is in the next breath, uh, he, he made a comment to the effect of, uh, we, we'll fight climate change, but we have to get the economy back on track first. And what really, really troubles me is there seems to not be an appreciation with my conservative colleagues. And there are some exceptions to this rule. Michael Chong, for example, gets it. Uh, but there are uh, the mainstream view within their party amongst people who believe climate change is real seems to ignore the fact that what's good for our environment is also good for our economy. We are no longer in a world where uh, you have to pick the economy or the environment or strike some balance. Uh, good environmental policy is good economic policy. If you talk to the Insurance Bureau of Canada, for example, um, who, look, despite the fact that I do think they're well-intentioned people, they're motivated primarily by the economics uh, of some of these decisions. They will tell you that between 1984 and I think it's the year 2000, or maybe, yeah, 2000, I think, um, the average loss, uh, average value of insured losses to severe weather events was between 250 and 450 million dollars. Uh, between 2010 and 2020, uh, that number is closer to two billion. Uh, in the five, 10 year window from now, it's anticipated to be about five billion dollars. There is an enormous cost to not taking climate policy seriously. We are paying for it with municipal tax dollars. We are paying for it with federal tax dollars, with provincial tax dollars. Um, you're seeing floods that cost uh, businesses massive shuts down, uh, forest fires, the same thing. On the East Coast, we're more prone to hurricanes. Um, the, but the upside uh, um, opportunity of making the kinds of investments that fight climate change are that you can develop technologies that you can then sell to the world. Uh, there's incredible companies like Carbon Cure in, in Dartmouth uh, that is actually removing uh, CO2 from the atmosphere and using it to strengthen concrete, uh, which holds it in perpetuity, more or less, uh, into a product that can be used. Um, you can see uh, manufacturers of electric vehicles and electric vehicle charging technology in our own community. And, and you also have more livable communities that people want to live in when you focus on protecting the environment. Uh, so uh, we have to divorce ourselves from the old school train of thought, which is that you have to choose the environment or the economy or strike a balance, uh, but instead appreciate, like we have during this pandemic, we know the best economic policy has been a strong public health response. One of the greatest economic opportunities going forward is going to be a strong climate response. And if we can't uh, wake up to the fact that what's good for the environment is also good for the economy, uh, then we have no business being in politics.
Awesome. Well, that's all the questions I have for today. And uh, I want to say thank you very much for, for spending some time with me and having a little chat. So. Of course. Look, an absolute pleasure to be with you. I, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Aiden. Yeah, thank you. And that's our show for today. I want to say thank you very much for tuning in and talking about politics with me. And I want to say thank you to Sean Fraser, who took time out of his very busy schedule to talk to me about what a parliamentary secretary is and, hey, a few other things. And I have a pretty special announcement. If you're listening to us on Podbean, Shaping the Future is now available on Apple Podcast. So, why don't head over and check us out? If you're already on Apple Podcast, fantastic. Hit that subscribe button and stay a while. Be sure to keep your eyes peeled for an upcoming episode of Shaping the Future in the coming weeks. But until then, why not get involved? Politics isn't a scary thing, and I'll be here to help you through every step of the way. Until we talk again, I've been your host, Hayden Fujir.